This is Ahead of the Curve, a banker's podcast. Welcome to our first episode. I'm your host, Thomas Curley, and I'm here with Andy Snow, Senior Vice President of Customer Success at Abrigo, and David O'Connell, Senior Strategic Advisor on Ite Navarica's commercial banking team. Andy aligns the implementation and customer success teams at Abrigo to ensure clients enjoy a seamless experience during their software implementation process. Prior to his role, he served as the Vice President of Implementation, where he led consultants, project managers, and trainers to help financial institutions use and roll out lending, credit, and portfolio risk solutions. David, on the other hand, is a former commercial lender of 14 years. He brings a wealth of experience on financial institutions' challenges and building businesses that lend safely, cost-effectively, and at scale. His coverage of lending encompasses the entirety of the loan lifecycle, so we're excited to have both of them on today. We're going to be talking about customization versus configuration of software, along with some other implementation best practices. It's been a topic of interest and a source of a lot of questions that I've been hearing from banking circles recently. And I know that everyone's tired of talking about the pandemic, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about because it's so important to set the stage is the fast-changing market expectations of digitalization and automation. Many financial institutions are ramping up their technology usage and purchases, whether they had nothing before the pandemic or maybe they're adding and upgrading based on some feedback over the last 24 months or so. It's a lot to take in, and so that's why I've asked both these experts to join us. To start things off, I'm going to have David jump in and really define what customization versus configuration means when we're talking about it and thinking of how it can play a huge factor in some on-time budget and scope projects. Okay, thanks very much. And it's actually a little bit difficult to define and determine the difference difference between configuration and customization. I think we all know these two things when we see it. Um, But let's think about a bit of a definition. So I think of configuration, okay, as changing the characteristics of a software capability within the scope of variability for which it was designed. And ideally with such changes made by folks without an extensive technological background, okay? Let's put it another way, okay? If you have meaningfully changed um, the capability relative to the relative to its out-of-the-box configuration, then you have probably um, you have probably configured, not customized. Okay. Now let's think about customization. Customization um, is any transformation of a capability such that it differs meaningfully from its out-of-the-box version. Okay. Um, how do we define that? Well, first of all, it's meaningful if it if if it, if the changes. Um, increase in a relevant way, the risk that it will break or become unstable when an update or patch comes down the SaaS pipeline. And certainly, if you are changing or adding custom code, then that is definitely customization, no pun intended. Um, But with that, Andy, um, I know that on the topic of of customization, you have some thoughts about different flavors, um, unintentional versus intentional. That's right. Thanks, David. I do... um... You know, oftentimes when one is, is is heading down the path of implementing some enterprise software, 
uh, you can. It's easy to get lulled into thinking that uh, a lot of what you're going to be doing is automating uh, what you've already done today. Maybe it's manual. Maybe it's in another system. And so, one of the culprits to to people ending up kind of in this customized state is them trying to really kind of replicate uh, what already exists today, which oftentimes has a lot of inherent or um, uh, bad habits and processes baked into it. So I do know that when one has the, has the mindset of transcending the status quo and really using uh, the, the implementation of a, of, a, of a new service, a new software, a new product, what have you, uh, having, having the mindset of really using that as a catalyst to uh, start fresh is, is a great way to avoid the pitfall of customization. Uh, in terms of configuration, I think that, um, uh, you know, we, we talk oftentimes about uh, the, the pathway to allowing one to actually complete a project and begin using a new product or service. What, a great way to do that is by ensuring that uh, you, you are minimizing the decisions that, that your staff um, and personnel need to make on a regular basis, that you're leveraging the experience of the provider of said solution and the best practices that have already been kind of baked into the solution. Uh, all those lend themselves to really putting you down the pathway of making a few decisions to slightly tweak what exists for everybody. Yeah, you know, I think that there are some interesting ways that this plays out in the market or plays out um, in how um, end users, meaning the end end users, and also, you know, the deployment champions, how they feel about their deployments. Um, I happen to be in kind of a lucky situation. You know, I, I find this business fascinating. I love doing research upon it. I, I'm often in the neat situation of asking folks, you know, how is your CLO deployment going? And I often hear the response, you know, I ask folks, how, was your, how, how did the deployment go? Uh, did, it, did it meet your expectations? Were you on budget, on time, things like that? And oftentimes, one might be surprised at how often. I get the response that goes something like this. No, and it's kind of our fault. Don't necessarily blame the vendor, okay? Because sometimes, you know, I'm an industry analyst and I'm, off, I'm often asking questions in the market with regard to vendors. And so folks sometimes take ownership of things not going well. And the reason they take ownership of things not going well is after the go-live date and some surprises, okay, um, folks realized that they maybe shouldn't have done things as they did during the deployment. And whenever they tell me, no, it's kind of our fault, okay, it almost always has to do with customization, okay? Um, and customization means that you are going to grab a whole bunch of resources in order to kind of, I don't know, over-replicate or over-memorialize part of the pre-deployment state. And anytime you do that, the grabbing of those resources put you at, puts you at risk of going over budget because you spent more money going um, beyond the uh, SOT deployment go-live date uh, because you had to do all these things. And you tend to de-scope, okay? So 
let's say you have um, business requirements that you want to fulfill in seven or eight areas, okay? Well, if you over-customize in one of those seven or eight areas, one of the other seven or eight areas is going to get de-scoped, okay, in terms of features, functionality, um, business requirements met. Um, and so that's where I kind of feel like it's a problem is folks telling me, yeah, didn't go all that well, but it was kind of our fault. And we live in a world of scarce resources. Um, to, to the degree to which we over-customize, it consumes resources and it has to come from something else. And it will come from that something else in the form of going over budget, over time, or descoping something else. Um, Andy, you and I have chatted about this in the past. I think on your mind are some best practices um, ideas. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. You know, when you really think about the effect and how this plays out in the real world, I think that, again, to kind of tie this off, right, oftentimes a lot of this is just done unintentionally and it's just human nature. Um, I've, I've seen in many situations where uh, people are really going to, to the, the depths of one end uh, to, to really make sure that they address any and every scenario or exception, which to your point then, uh, at, at times will just draw more attention uh, to maybe the squeaky wheel or something that only happens every other lunar eclipse during a leap year, right? And people end up kind of losing sight of the of the forest because they're just kind of locked down and confused uh, within the tree line. So I do know in terms of a best practice, the, the number one is to make sure that your project, your initiative has some clearly defined goals and objectives that can help remind everybody what it is you're trying to accomplish. And then also be used as really kind of a, a reference point, a beacon in the midst of people potentially heading down a pathway that's really going to lead to um, a lot of work and attention uh, potentially taken away from some other items. Um, beyond that, once you do have those those goals and objectives really defined, I think that um, having a solution, when you think about customization, as you eloquently put it in the beginning, the, the definition you, you want to have a, a starting point, and if, if a provider, a vendor is, is able to at least share with you, here is how a majority of like users are experiencing this product. Let's start with this, and then let's just slightly tweak it based on some configurations and settings and templates to then ultimately make it your own. But rather than reinventing the wheel, we start with one, and then we just work to shine it and perfect it. So, yeah, that's a great point, Andy. And I think we're going to talk about a lot more of kind of the best practices and specifics moving on, but maybe we'll flip it a little bit. We've been talking a lot about why does this happen from maybe a project scope standpoint, but I know we wanted to talk a little bit more from the people side. What are some of the common slip-ups that set folks down this customization, configuration, path, or maybe it doesn't work out the way they want to. Right. I think that um, when, when I think about that topic, I will just say this, that most challenges that get presented during the course of a technical project implementation, what have you, it's typically fueled by humans that have varying motivations or different motivations. And as I mentioned before, I, in most cases, it's, it's not intentional 
an intentional hijacking of a project just because um, that's in their DNA and they like to see things fail. Typically what's happening is um, they're, they're uncertain as to why, what, why are we doing this? Um, and as a result of that, they don't know what role they play. And so then they start to, um, you know, really uh, retreat a little bit, resist um, because they are uncertain. So I can tell you that just playing off of kind of the best practices, um, you know, there's a there's a progression that a human needs to go through to accept some change. Uh, let's just assume for this conversation, right? We're talking about implementing something that is going to change how one does their job. So that's that that can be that can be very intimidating, and oftentimes the fear is associated with the unknown. So <clears throat> when when we talk about um, executive sponsorship. Uh, executive, uh, you, know, you know, management, you know, really making sure that, um, you, you know, we have endorsement at the highest levels for an initiative. You can't, you can't downplay that. You know, it's, it, it's really leadership more than anything. And it starts with clearly defining to everybody, what are we doing? Uh, why are we doing this? Uh, who are we doing it with? And how are we going to organize around it and make it, make it happen? And, and, and that's the kind of progression that, that one needs to be led through in order for them to ultimately buy in and accept something and be a willing participant. And, and that is ultimately when you will uh, be able to overcome resistance and you'll be able to get out proactively and do it just by, by, by heading it off at the pass and making sure that you are working to j- create awareness for everybody um, generate desire because people are excited about what it means for the organization and also them individually. And then you work down the pathway then of getting them comfortable with how to use a product, proficient with being able to replicate it over time, and then reinforcement, which we'll talk about later. But the, the main takeaway I'd like um, you know everybody to leave with here on this topic is that it's, it's the job of a leader within an organization and they can be in, at various points within the organization to uh, create awareness and generate desire. I think per, per, kind of pervading, so to speak, uh, what Annie was saying a moment ago was the topic of change. Um, and I think change arises in two ways. First of all, folks tend to resist um, changes because they want to keep the steady state. And they also underestimate the upside available to them um, that can come with change, okay? And what's on my mind here is I'm often surprised how common it is for folks to use CL, a CLO de- deployment to merely automate, kind of replicate, almost mo- memorialize the existing state. And that's really pretty interesting when you think about it. Because do any of us like the existing state of our commercial loan origination forms, processes, everything? Do we like it so much, everything about it, that we want to memorialize it in a in a new deployment? Or, or to put it in kind of a double negative that describes the missed opportunity, I'm surprised how often it's overlooked that a CLO deployment is the is an opportunity to go blank slate on things like forms, processes, and rebuild these things from from scratch. Rebuild what? Rebuild the CPS in general. In particular, all the spaghetti on the front page that is so incredibly labor-intensive. Every gadget in the process. And oh, by the way, what about, speaking of change in process, 
many folks use a CLO deployment, okay, to change and govern who does what. In other words, to kind of institute and govern role-based, um, role-based SLAs, okay? So I really, I really think that one issue that comes up is that the more we're customizing to replicate the current steady state, the more we are the more we're missing opportunities to undertake changes that we all really want. I mean, nobody really loves the way CLO is done right now. Um, and the more we customize, the less we can, the less we can act like our own consultants and advocates, advocates for change in the environment that we want to have. Um, and Andy, I know um, you feel kind of um, strongly about the topic of uh, executive management and mandate. Uh, and things like goals. Thoughts on that? Yeah, I think one of the <clears throat> one of the biggest ways to really generate desire and people getting excited about working on affecting change and uh, you know creating a new uh, system with new processes and outputs is is by giving them an opportunity to actually participate in it and influence the outcome. So <clears throat> you know when you when you think about a best practice for organizing around this. You know, every group that's going to be a potential uh, user and new customer of a new system, give them give them the opportunity to have their interests uh, represented as a part of the onboarding process, uh, so that it ultimately becomes a system that was that was configured and designed by them and for them, rather than done in a vacuum by people who think they know how they that group does their job today, or worse yet, has strong opinions on how they think they should do it tomorrow. Uh, give people that are going to ultimately be using this thing an opportunity to to get in and affect the outcome. Uh, that right there is is how you create the desire. Is that not only have you told people why why we're heading down this pathway and the destination we're 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 uh, uh, you know attempting to to reach, but we're also giving them a chance to actually drive the car a little bit on the way. And and speaking speaking of driving the car. Um, sometimes I think folks don't realize how much um, a good deployment kind of with minimal customization can actually actually put them in the driver's seat, okay? Um, there is a persistent fear, less so as a result of the pandemic and all the digitalization that's been required to get through it. There's been this persistent fear um, in commercial lending in particular that the more automa- automation there is, the less dispensable I am. Um, I'm sorry, the less indispensable I am. This is what lenders often think. Um, but they're missing the fact that with the more automation they have, the more um, the more they can move upwards in what I kind of jokingly call Maslow's hierarchy of activities. Um, none of us want to be doing sort of the rote stuff of our job. We all want to be indispensable, frankly, as trusted advisors rather than process handlers, okay? Um, so I think that overlooked is the fact that with, the, with more automation uncluttered by customization, um, the more value-added activities both underwriters um, and lenders can do for the client, can do for the client, okay? And then there's also on the topic of change and engagement. I think one thing folks need to be careful about is although it's important to have sort of Lots of um, uh, lots of community meetings, okay, town hall gatherings, grassroots efforts 
to learn from all the various user groups what they want out of a deployment, I think that those should definitely happen. But but there can be this this bad habit that happens because people are in the room. Um, there's a compulsion to have lots of doing, um, lots of thinking, and lots of seeking out of, say, finely grained preferences, okay, just because they're in the room and they feel like that's what they ought to be doing. But that can get a, get in the way of leveraging um, from your vendor, with a V that is, by, by the lender, okay, leveraging the hundreds of deployments that your vendor has already done and kind of reside in that, lend, in that vendor's um, institutional knowledge, okay? ABL is ABL. Um, well, let me back up and kind of kind of not use jargon. Jargon. Um, asset-based lending is asset-based lending. I know everybody listening to us right now might be thinking, "No, nah, David, our ABL is actually pretty, pretty, pretty special." Um, but it's not. You know, your your vendor. You know, when they work with you, they've already done dozens, maybe hundreds of of deployments including in specialized areas such as ABL. So be opportunistic, okay? Let the hundreds of ABL lenders that went before you with your vendor make your deployment more effective on scope and on time. In other words, don't reinvent that tire. Um, Maybe decide exactly what treads you're going to have on it, what rim you'll have on it, um, you know, what the sheen will look like on the rubber, all those things instead of building the wheel from the ground up. And Thomas, uh, back to you. Yeah, I, I hear exactly what you're saying, David. There's there's a lot of people that can start to sidetrack implementations, but it's also important as t- to Andy's point to get that feedback. So it's definitely a fine balance for sure. But let's say for you know just argument's sake that we avoid all those ideas and that maybe kind of affect implementation. What's the business case when we really talk about configuration and customization? why you know separating people from it um, is such an important decision for an institution to think about so the first thought i have is that um if when folks customize any deployment really okay it can feel like a one-time decision and it's actually not at all a one-time decision it's actually the opposite of a one-time decision it's a cascading decision with kind of profound impl- implications, okay? In my opinion, and again, I've interviewed lots of people on this topic, to the degree that you customize, you have entered the software business, okay? And that is not an exaggeration, okay? And this is a very tricky and risky decision to make either on purpose or by accident because you're not in the software business. You don't even want to be in the software business part-time or kind of part-time because no, you're in the business of gathering deposits and capital, redeploying those resources as loans and monitoring um, the result, the resulting risk. Okay. And when you, when you um, customize, okay. And most customization is over customization. You wind up with a whole lot of responsibilities down the line after the go live date that are underestimated, costly, um, make you less nimble when it comes time to, to adapt your, um, your deployment for, say, a a new portal or some new technology or maybe a new way to interact with millennials um, over over a channel of their preference, okay? Um, um, And, and, you know, primary among my concerns is that, well, to get a little granular here, um, 
you know, we're all getting our capabilities over the over the SaaS pipe, so to speak. Um, and when we have config, when we've kind of entered the software business and customized our deployment because of our own sp- supposed granular specialness, new upgrades, products, enhancements, and other things can cause um, deployments to become unstable. You know, it's it's almost like. It's almost as if when you deploy with customization, you see only the chunk of the iceberg um, that is above the water. Thoughts on that, Andy? Yeah, spot on, right? So, yeah, the iceberg principle, iceberg theory, basically, you can't see or detect most of a situation's, you know, data. Uh, So you're, you're, you're spot on with the fact that what seems like maybe a benign decision to, hey, let's customize the following thing, seems straightforward. Uh, what, what happens, though, is um, the effect of it is compounded in some degree. So you, you don't think about uh, every time a new, broader release comes out, uh, the fact that regression testing, backwards compatibility checks, all that has to be done to ensure that previous kind of workarounds and customizations are preserved. And so then oftentimes what happens is that delays the acceptance of, say, a new release of which you could use 95% of it, but you're unable to because there's some kind of issue relating to some uh, innocuous, uh, seemingly uh, minor customization that was done uh, months or years ago. So uh, I I couldn't agree more. I think that um, on the surface – it always looks like, uh, you know, potentially a, a no-brainer, something straightforward, something that's harmless. Oftentimes, though, uh, what's beneath the sea is uh, – if you could see it then, uh, you'd never make that decision to go straight at it again. Yeah, and this, 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 um, this trade-off really – invokes a bunch of challenges with um, training, project timelines, um, uh, dealing with one another in sort of the town hall meetings and grassroots gathering of deployments. And what can be tricky is holding the line and seeking um, not to accommodate every desired uh, deployment complexity sought by sought by certain individuals or groups who are kind of favored or who have clout in the organization. Um, I think it's important to hold the line with these folks because, as, as I said a few minutes ago, every every customization before you do the deployment, okay, um, consumes resources in the form of cost or time or both, and they always materialize in taking something away from something else. And here's, here's another thing. Um, People's perceptions before and after the go-live date of a deployment are profoundly, profoundly different. Before the deployment, when we're in those um, town hall meetings and, and, and brown bag lunches and, and meetings in which we're gathering business requirements, they think they know what they want in a finely grained way from the deployment, okay? But I've seen many, many times that they're often wrong. It often turns out that they don't need the customization they think they need. They can actually get that from a configuration that's also available, or they might not even need that configuration or highly specialized and granular business requirement as much as they want. My suggestion is to kind of narrow the scope of customization absolutely, um, 
as much as possible down to zero, and maybe even minimize the scope of configuration. To get live, okay, and it's okay to be a little bit scrummy in a deployment like this, it's okay to get live and then see if you, I'm going to use kind of fun language here, to get live and then see if you really, really need um, those granular customizations or those, God forbid, uh, actual customizations. In other words, get very, very careful about what's about what's theoretically needed before the go live date, and what turns out to be a real a real need um, after the go live date. Okay, um, and Andy, you know, in talking about this, I think last week or something like that, I, I know you had some strong feelings about optimization reviews. Um, I'd love it if you could talk about that a little bit. Right. I do think <clears throat> in general, you know, what, one of the happiest days, uh, you, you know, in someone's professional life is the day they make a decision, right, on moving forward with a certain project or buying a, buying a product, uh, you know, that they feel is going to, you know, cure a bunch of ills, right? Um, and then the longer amount of time that you get away from that day, things start to wane. So I am a big believer in uh, getting in and deriving value from from your purchase sooner rather than later. And a great way to do that is, as you mentioned, is having the mindset of a minimum viable product kind of out of the gate. And one way you ensure you have that is by partnering with somebody that is able to share with you how many other like-sized organizations with similar concentrations what they're doing and how they're leveraging that product today. And it's like the age old 80-20 rule, right? Like uh, 80% of what you need, you could probably start using uh, closer closer to day zero than say day 365. So uh, big believer in that, getting up and live and exercising. And then once you're actually in the system and leveraging it, a lot of the things to your point that you might've thought you needed at the beginning, you might find are irrelevant because they're addressed elsewhere within the system or they weren't as big of a deal as you thought they were going to be. But then that's where uh, a cadence of optimization reviews uh, are, are a really important practice to really um, build reinforcement with the rest of your staff and team. The fact of the matter is that you know how you're using the product today might need to evolve, right? As things internal or externally change, right? New variables get introduced. So it is a very, very good practice to constantly reassess how you're using the tool. And you might find that there are things that used to be important that aren't anymore that you can eliminate. And there's uh, the, the need to introduce things that hadn't been contemplated before. But the fact of the matter is that all of that is an output from you actually getting in and using the system, not theorizing on the outside. Yeah, and speaking of before and after go live to uh, before and after states uh, of the deployment. Okay, um, I think that I think that the the ultimate state of a deployment um, and its uh, simplicity, its stability has kind of a meta impact, okay? And on my mind here is sort of the intellectual bench at a bank in general, and the fact that there's a real war for talent on out there. Lots of commercial lenders tell me that among the biggest barriers they have to growth is the acquisition of talent that can underwrite risk um, uh, they can they can underwrite risk. They're looking they have a hard time um, um, finding recruiting, 
hiring and retaining both lenders um, and underwriters. And the better your automation is, okay, the more you're going to attract those younger workers that you need to replace. Um, frankly, the many baby baby boomers and Gen Xers who are retiring or or close to retiring. And um, I just want to add here, you know, the differences between boomers uh, on the one hand and um, I'm sorry, the, the the difference between boomers and Xers on the one hand and millennials isn't just sort of trivia for poking fun at one another um, at a dinner party. Um, we do a lot of psychographics here at Ita Novarica Group, and we've been doing them for a long time, and there's something really interesting going on right now. Um, when we do psychographic analyses in which we compare um, millennials to boomers and Gen Xers, we consistently see differences that are not only statistically significant, okay, you know, that makes our quant people happy, but they're actually large differences, okay, um, including attitudes about technologies, about technology, all right? So it is important here are two things. First of all, it will enable you to kind of compete better, you know, for you to have uh, deployments that are easier, not, not, not overcomplicated, more stable. It'll make it easier for you um, to, for one thing, um, attract millennials. But we've known for a long time, okay, that loan officers and, and underwriters of any generation, they absolutely will change banks for technology that not only has good UIs, um, but is stable and straightforward and enables them to, again, you know, be at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of, of, of um, activities. In other words, spending more time, okay, um, in the role of trusted advisor, capital T, capital A, rather than the person toiling in front of a, front of a deployment that has too much complexity, okay? Um, you know, and in the end, I think that, um, you know, the best automated environments, okay, with the most straightforward deployments, with the best um, um, uptime, these are going to be the deployments um, that are best at attracting that are attracting folks. In other words, those most able to get around this growth barrier will be the ones most desirable to work at. Um, that means good, straightforward technology that makes non-core tasks easy without undue complexity, um, without undue complexity, of, or use of task um, will be the best at attracting new talent. So I guess at this point, it's kind of time to summarize. And I think I'll start here. Um, when, you when you deploy CLO, your primary goals should be to minimize cost, maximize adoption, to deploy on scope. And by on scope, meaning hitting, hitting all of your business requirement. Over customization, and most customization is over-customization, introduces, introduces friction for all, all of these things. And it keeps you from getting value, all of the value from your vendor that is available. They've done dozens, maybe hundreds of deployments like the one you're undertaking. And there's a great deal of value in that vendor's institutional knowledge. It's up to you to extract that the value in that knowledge um, uh, by deploying based on it. Truly, there are only so many ways you can configure the terms of an AB, ABL loan. So leverage all of their capabilities for configuration of ABL loan because configuration rather than customization will probably um, get you pretty much all of, all of what you 
of what you want. And memorialization or replication in automation of how exactly you do something, such such as an ABL loan, how it's done in a new deployment, has far less value than you think uh, compared to doing it based on the entire institutional knowledge of your vendor and all of the clients that that have preceded you. And that's actually an understatement. I said it has less value than, than, than you might think. What I think is actually true, it has, a, it has far more um, costs than you, would, than, you would guess, than you would guess. In fact, I think a great deal of cascading disruptive costs. I think that's a great way to end it and wrap it up. A uh, great summary. But I think there's a lot of discussion around customization and configuration. We've talked about the pandemic and some of the underlying effects, as you mentioned, with millennials, Gen Xers. And so I think it's an important conversation and one that we'll be hearing progressively more and more about moving forward over the coming months. Uh, So I want to thank Andy and David. Uh, Thank you all so much for joining us. And for those of you that are uh, listening for the first time, uh, you can find this and future episodes of the podcast on abrigo.com or on your favorite podcast app or platform. Just search Ahead of the Curve, a banker's podcast, and hit subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back again with you soon.